title. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be starting in verse 30, if you want to turn in your Bibles there or flip on your screens there. And the inspiration of this message really just came because this was the random passage we turned to in one of our little family Balfour Bible times recently. And every once in a while we're looking at this thing and the kids will say something or Jackie will say something or I'll see something and I'll be like, that is so weird how this story went down. And I'll get really hooked into it and be thinking about it a lot. And so there's no huge... uh, message in this besides, I can't believe I never saw what Jesus did in this situation before. And at the same time, I am very hopeful in the Lord that there is something like a Reformation revival coming to our neck of the woods sometime soon. And I do think that the message today will contribute to us not messing it up when God shows up. I haven't been alive that long, but from what I've seen in the church, God does send waves and movements across the church, and they often go wrong because of us, not him. We do weird things when God is doing big things. And it doesn't have to be like that. Amen? So the message today is called, Let's Not Be So Sure We're Seeing to Nigs Right. It is on purpose. Let's not be so sure we're seeing things right. Why don't we read this together? Now, the background here is that Jesus is living with his disciples. They're nearing the back stretch. I think they're in about the ninth inning, maybe the late eighth inning of his ministry here. He's been going around. He's been teaching a long time. He's been doing miracles a long time. He's put a lot of miles on his sandals, and his disciples have been for him for quite a long time. And Jesus is trying to teach his disciples something that their hearts and minds are very resistant to understanding, which is that the chosen Messiah that they've been waiting for for centuries was going to suffer and die. And he's trying to teach them this, and they have this interesting episode along the way. Starting in verse 30, it says... They went on from there and passed through Galilee, which is Jesus' kind of home territory. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down, and he called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and the servant of all. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Father God, I just pray for uh, a great empowerment by the Holy Spirit to help us get what we don't get. Lord, you know the human heart is so resistant to hearing good news that sounds like bad news. 
and to hear that there's going to be a cost to doing what's right. And the God we thought we knew is different but better than we thought. It's hard on us and it's hard for us. But Lord, for the sake of your kingdom and our joy in you and our true vision of Jesus and our usefulness in this world and to be a light in this dark time and in this dark place, I pray that you would really help us to get what Jesus was trying to teach the apostles in this moment. And Lord, that we would enter into the joy of this upside-down kingdom for our great pleasure for all eternity and your awesome praise. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So I'm going to cut to the chase a little bit. And the thing that kind of knocked my socks off about this story, and then I'll backtrack and we'll take it from the beginning, but the thing that knocked my socks off about this story is that the disciples are having this argument about who's the greatest right? And Jesus invites himself into that discussion. What were you guys talking about? And he doesn't say to them, I'm the greatest, even though he is. Because that's the weird thing about this story for me. You would think if I were Jesus in this story and I came in with all these, you know, the fishermen and the tax collectors and all the whatever unimportant people who are only important because I've invited them to become important and they're hanging out with the Messiah who's also the Son of God and they're trying to discuss who's the greatest among them, I would just be like, McFly, it's me. How many people do I need to raise from the dead for you to understand that it's me? See, and that's why I am not Jesus and aren't in the Bible and wonder why I even get to work in a church sometimes. But that's the thing that caught me off guard about this story and about Jesus. And hence, I needed to get in there and understand after all these years of being a Christian, how many times have I read the Bible? He still surprises me. And that's an awesome thing. So Jesus has got his disciples and he's anticipating his coming death. It's going to be soon. And uh, they're not ready at all. And I don't think they ever get ready. But he's a good teacher and he loves them and he's a good disciple maker. And so he is making every effort in the flesh, so to speak, to try to teach them this. And it's really interesting because this is at the high point of Jesus' fame and popularity. He has been teaching. He's been feeding the crowds of the 5,000s. He's been setting demoniac people free so that they go from being like, totally given up on in the psych ward to all of a sudden being traveling preachers in the right mind. He's been doing good. The prostitutes are coming. All the people who are following John the Baptist think this is the guy. This is it. All the crowds are there. He's famous. And now he's trying to get from Galilee to Capernaum and they're taking the dirt roads and they're cutting through the farm fields because they're trying to avoid the people who are kind of like trying to hunt Jesus down all the time to get a miracle out of him or a famous teaching out of him. He's, he, they're taking the, the back stretches because he wants some extra time with these close disciples that he's chosen because he just wants them to get it. I'm going to die in a bad way soon.
And for them, this news, I mean, they've believed almost everything else Jesus has said so far, right? Not really. But this news, it's just so like spitballs off the forehead to all of them that all the scripture can say about their response is they didn't get it and they were too afraid to ask. So, so everything's gone awkward. But it's not Jesus' fault because he's, for a guy who likes to speak to people in riddles and parables and it's like, well, one day there was this cow, okay? And there's this guy throwing seed and you know, there, there's this guy who went to hell one time and he's, he's being awfully direct. I'm going to get arrested. I'm going to get killed, and then on the third day, I'll be back. I don't get it. Let me try again from the start. I'm going to get arrested. They're going to kill me. On the third day, I'm going to come back from the dead. <laughs> Sorry, that's all Mandarin to me. Okay, I'm going to, let's back this up one more time, okay? Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? I'm going to get arrested. They're going to kill me. On the third day, I will come back from the dead. Sorry, we'll need the Google Translator. Anyhow, somewhere along the lines, and we don't have all the details, Jesus gets separated from his disciples. And somehow the story goes from, or the conversation goes from, what was Jesus talking about when he said that he was going to die and come back to? Who do you think which one of us is the best, really? Like, and you. You know, it's not Bible, but it is fun to imagine how that progression went. Hey, we're heading to Jerusalem. I'm expecting Jesus to take over the government. You know, he's the Messiah and all. What do you think for me? Minister of finance or minister of justice? Why would you even be in there? Peter, you're, you're so bad at putting your foot in your mouth. If they get you in front of the cameras for even five minutes, you're going to bring down this whole government. What are you talking about? I walked on water. Do you know how many demons have you cast out? I cast at least 55. Well, yeah, because you had so many in you to start off with. And they're going off at each other, arguing about who's the greatest. And you just wonder. And you know what? I'm sure they had no clue what they were doing. I'm sure if you asked them, were you having an argument about who's the greatest? They'd be like, no, no, no. But just John thought he was being so full of himself, I just had to take him down a few pegs. And because of who I know I am, it was my job to do it. And the Bible just tells us, they were arguing about who's the greatest, but they didn't see it at all. Just like we don't see it when we do it, right? <laughs> I got one laugh out of that. Just like we don't see it when we do it too, right? Wink, wink. No, I'm just talking about other churches. Don't worry. We're the good one. We're the greatest one, in fact. And I'll list the reasons. The worship. The durability of our guitar strings. The uh, fact that our laser pointers always work. The uh, spelling in the slideshows. Uh, And I love just the humanness of this story because it's so good. Never turn your back on Jesus. They've had this discussion, and they're, you know, Jesus is in a house somewhere, obviously, and they're probably arguing on the way to this house. And they get to this house, and then they all just realize, we don't really want Jesus to know what we were just talking about. So why don't we just drop it 
and then we'll pick it up sometime later. Sometime, you know, when Jesus is feeling sorry for the prostitutes again, and he's out there washing them and and calling them sister and daughter, and we're hanging back because, you know, reasons. We'll pick this up about who's the best again. But for now, let's just delete the text history on this one. So if Jesus picks up our phone, there's nothing on there. And then they come into the house, and Jesus just says, Hey, guys, great to see you. Good. Hey, good. Well, here's some bread. And, you know, and so uh, you guys have any interesting conversations on the way here that you stopped right before you came in the house? <laughs> and you just, know, you just know that feeling, right? Like that busted feeling, right? Like when you're about to go to St. Malo, and everyone's in the van, and your wife says to you, So did you buy the park pass yet? <laughs> right? And you remember the last time you tried to do it online, it took you half an hour because your computer sucks so bad and you're hoping the work you did on it since then will cut that time down. And you find yourself in your upstairs and you're so mad because even though you promised to do it yesterday, it has to be somebody else's fault that you're getting busted on this right when everyone's supposed to leave and you've got the window open and you find yourself shouting out the window for the second time, what's our license plate number because you promised to do it and it's all your fault and you're guilty but it has to be somebody else's fault that you didn't do this already? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that happens to everybody. And you just know that they have this total deer-in-the-headlight moment. And the headlights are getting bigger. And the headlight is turning into a grill. And you're the deer. And the grill is now making contact with your legs. And your legs are shattering in a dozen places. And you're starting to twist over with the impact of the grill. And now your torso has hit the hood. And the impact of all that hood mass is forcing you to twist and turn and is shattering your ribs and causing your lung and heart and internal organs to explode as you're catapulted upwards and glance off the windshield and spin in a mass of broken bone and blood and what would have been good leather if it had been shot instead of hit and you're tumbling through the air in a way that you're going to end up at the side of the highway too much and you know that by the time the sun has risen the next day your body's going to have swolled up so that your legs are kind of sticking in the air like this like you're some kind of pig piñata that can't quite put it all together again and someone from highways is going to have to drag you off they can see it they're busted it's all over And Jesus kind of elongates the discomfort by saying, why don't we all just sit down and have a little chat? You go grab this person, and you go grab this person, and they have to wait that whole time for everyone to gather together. It helps make the point, the silence. And then the strangeness occurs. Because he knows their heart. Like, they've seen Jesus do the mind-reading thing before, but somehow they thought they would be safe. 
And he sits them down and he starts to give them a very little lesson about what real greatness means to him and to the kingdom. And he says, if you want to be first, you have to be last of all and the servant of all. And then he takes this child and he puts it in the midst of them and taking him in his arms. So he he actually just, is it a baby and he's holding it? Or is it a little kid and he's got his arm around it? I don't know. And he says, when you accept this guy, you're accepting me. And you're not just accepting me. You're saying, hello, Father, to the God of the universe. Because Jesus knew for the rest of the history of the church that it was going to be hard to get children's ministry workers. True fact. And he knew about his disciples, because this isn't that long from when Jesus had to rebuke them for trying to shoo the kids away like mosquitoes at a campfire. All these little bloodsuckers are coming around and spoiling our good thing. Get out of here. And Jesus said, stop, stop, let the little children come to me. And so he knows that his own disciples already think that these stinky little buggers are just an annoyance. And so he puts them right in the middle and says, I have a new way for you to be great. You treat this thing like God himself. End of story. And he doesn't pull rank and doesn't say, I'm the greatest thing you'll ever share a room with. Because if he did it, we would think we should do it. True? He's such a good teacher. Don't do anything you don't want your followers to imitate, says Jesus. And if I said to them, hey, I'm the most important person in the room, then when Jesus leaves, the next guy's going to think that he can say, I'm the most important person in the room. Then all of us are going to think, it's okay to think you're the most important person. Blah, 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 blah. Reason number 18 that Calvary's the best. Rob can't finish his sentences which leaves a sense of suspense and intrigue and curiosity about what he's trying to communicate, which is the best way to keep attention. So why do these... You know, so let's unpack this a little bit more. Bring it home. Put the belt sander up to our own hearts. Wouldn't we agree if we're sober and honest with ourselves and not trying to defend ourselves that we, we do have moments, and maybe more than we should, where we're really hoping, maybe not that we're the greatest, but that we're at least up there a little bit in some way. That you don't want to be the last person picked for the California kickball team. Then there's some sense for all of us that we're like, I don't need to be the best Christian, but I want to be a good one. I don't need to be the best plumber, but I want to be a good one. Up there, at least number five, or top three, or top two, or top one. I want to toss up for the top one. And sometimes it can even be in things that are important, even to the Lord. I want to be a great dad, at least in the running for the greatest dad, or a great husband, or a great mom, or a great wife, or a great prayer warrior, or a great preacher, or a great worship leader, just some, some kind of Goodness, greatness, achievement in the top half, a passing mark, at least a C minus, maybe a D plus would be okay, but 
some sense of evaluation going on. Has nobody ever, am I all alone? And kind of hoping that if the great debate of greatness came by, does nobody here watch like Great British, British Bake Off and find that for weeks you're just wanting to have people compete so you can agree that they're the greatest and watching people put their whole lives on television to try to get a little trophy and maybe a TV show or a magazine that says greatest over them for five minutes of their life until the next season starts and everyone forgets about you? So there's no sports fans in here. Just, just, just one honest Abe. I cannot tell a lie. That if you can't be the greatest, you want to at least watch the greatest and be the right person who knows who the greatest is and tells everybody else they don't know who the greatest team is because my team is the greatest team and that makes me close to greatness and if I can't be the greatest, at least I can have the jersey of the greatest. Nobody? No, this isn't a multi-billion dollar issue. Why do we want to be great? Is it because it rescues us from the vulnerability of fear of failure? Is it because it, if we're a great person, we at least might think that we won't lose friends and be rejected and saves us from the fear of being alone? Because we know the loser at the last, nobody's going to want to be with them, and no one's going to want to like them, and no one's going to want to love them. And there's something about being at the top of your game that must force people to respect you and want to be around you and listen to you and give you titles that make you feel good. I remember when I was at university at Regent. Sorry, I've been doing this for a long time, and I can't remember the last time I've told any of my stories. So I'm hoping this is new to at least one person here. But I went to Regent College to uh, get a degree, a master's degree in Christian studies. And after about a year there, I realized that there was something in my heart that wanted a piece of paper that said master's degree on it because I felt like if I got that, then people would have to finally listen to me. Because I've got a degree. So you have to care what I say not realizing that you can't make anybody care what you say if they don't want to. Nobody cares. Nobody cares if they don't want to. But that was something in my heart. I wanted to be great. And I ended up actually like coming away with two awards in what I was studying. And nobody cares. And that's just fine. It's, just, it's totally fine. But I remember having this one. I sat down in the atrium at Regent, and, I just, and what brought it about was that I, I noticed I was always competing. I had two really great friends at school. They were good friends, and I was always competing and hoping that I did better than them in the classes we were together. And, and I'm just like, this is a Christian university, and this is my heart. Like, I should never have stopped puking ever. Like, I'm at a Christian, I love you, we're brothers, as long as I'm 3% better at Hebrew than you are. Isn't that gross? That was really gross. And so I sat down with the Lord, and I'm just like, Lord, I see my motivations for being here. I get that it was not you in a major way. I'm ready to go home, just let me know. And I, 
felt like the Lord over time just said, no, just, just finish it. You're all, you're all good. I'm glad you see that. Just finish up. Where do you see in your life that if you didn't have some kind of thing or achievement or title or position that it would just cause such an insecurity or a sense of loss or a sense of fear of the future that it really bugs you that it might be taken away from you and that you might actually want to fight for that title of greatest or top or arch or pope or whatever. Pope's doing a good job of humbling himself right now. For many centuries, Pope meant like wearing solid gold and conquering nations and stuff, not necessarily humility. But do you ever see that? Like, what are you fighting for? To have or accomplish that makes your brothers and sisters a threat or an enemy or just makes the fact that you can't tell the truth about how things are really going. And you're hoping, you, you want to you come into the house with Jesus, but you really don't want to talk about what you were talking about before you got in there. I was listening to somebody said recently that they thought that the pursuit of avoiding shame is very likely the greatest motivator in human history. The things we do to not be exposed as foolish sinful, in bondage, small, weak, tired, flimsy, old, dying, breakable. We will kill other people in case they might be right when they say that there's something wrong with us. We'll cancel them, we'll destroy them. The, uh, the fear of shame, crazy. And this is what they're dealing with here. I just We're going to argue here, there's 12 of us, I need to be in the top six at least. And all of them have that same feeling. And Jesus wants to set them free. Like in everything, Jesus' response to them is he wants to get the world out of their brains so that he can get the kingdom into their hearts. True? Because they had this, this is a worldly way of looking at things. Who's the greatest disciple? It's very worldly. It's like The Apprentice, you know? Whatever. We all, how many of our shows, it's crazy. I, I don't watch a lot of TV, but on vacation we usually pick one. How much of our entertainment is just watching people, like, fight it out? It's gladiators, but people survive. Unless they secretly go and destroy their lives with drugs and alcohol or suicide after they get publicly humiliated like that. I don't know. We don't follow up with people like that. So the greatest being who ever lived doesn't pull rank on these little flimsy peons. And he's trying to do something. The first thing that I think he's trying to really deal with is our, our human desire to be part of a shared delusion. What do I mean by that? Like Most of us, we want to... We have things that aren't true that we all agree not to talk about. One might be the fact that we're all dying. You know, 100 years from now, we're all going to have a tombstone at our head. True? Yeah, we don't like talking about that, right? 
I'm 42, so I've got somewhere between like no days. But I'm, I, I would think if I was 102, that would surprise me. Just knowing <laughs> and how I live, you know, just all the facts, that would really surprise me. If I wasn't, you know, over the halfway mark, I'll take it. Though a lot of people don't totally enjoy their last 20 years when they live that long. You buried most of your friends and some of your family, and it's tough. But we're all dying. We don't live like we're dying. There's other, like, political stuff. Can I poke some bears? Yeah. Okay. God bless them. Joe Biden's down with his second COVID in, like, three weeks. Double, double vaccinated, double boosted. Double COVIDed. There was a time they said if you got got it, you couldn't get it or spread it. And we dropped it. We don't talk about it. And I think when you have a big worldwide event like that, we should all commit to like five years of talking it through. What are the facts now? But now we dropped it. Some tanks went into Ukraine and everyone's like, phew, if we can stop talking about that stuff. And But it's still here. And... Uh, and I know I'm making light of it a little bit, but it was a big deal. And when I think about the residential school stuff, which is still getting worked through, uh, it would be really nice if people just admitted what, what didn't, didn't happen there. And I, vaccine must do something, because no offense, the president is pretty frail, so two, two bouts of COVID, he should be dead, probably, unless it did something. So he's not a young guy anymore, but... And I, then I to, don't totally get, like, if you can still get it and still spread it, why it was okay to, like, lock down people who didn't get it, the vaccine. Because the whole point was that they were going to make everything worse, but they didn't. And then you got the monkeypox come in, and everybody knows exactly how it's spreading and who's spreading it. And if there were a time to lock down some people so that stuff stopped spreading, now would be the time to do it, and they're not doing it. So it doesn't all add up. And let's not get angry. The world is a messed up place and we have the kingdom of God and we're called to love everybody, but we've got to tell the truth because when you live in a shared delusion, you have a lot less of Jesus. Amen? Because these guys, these disciples, they're all walking down the street like they're not living with the greatest prophet who ever lived, who had already told them by this time that every secret you think you can keep is going to get shouted from the rooftop sometime. There are no secrets in God's world. He knows everything, he sees everything, and there's going to be some time when he puts it on the billboard. So what you do with secrets is you confess them and you get them under the blood and you get free before the big expose. And every once in a while, Jesus will do the expose thing in history so that everybody realizes who Jesus really is. Because they're living in this shared delusion like God doesn't know everything they're thinking and feeling. Anybody else live in that shared delusion? That you can keep a secret from God? How you're feeling, what you're thinking, what you've been doing? Anybody? Just me? And with one question, what were you guys talking about? Boom! The shared delusion turns into a mushroom cloud. And we, from 2,000 years later, we have to kind of still put our like, dark glasses blinders on and then the shockwaves. <laughs> one of the things the kingdom of God does in love is it comes into a people group and a culture and it starts undermining these shared delusions and shared lies. It is a baby. 
And it's a human life right from conception. God made it. And if you just, just leave it there for a little while, it'll turn into a baby. And when the shared delusions start getting undercut a bit, people can respond real, real bad. But Jesus does it in love. He wants these guys to know him as he really is and not waste their life chasing after greatness, which is nothingness. True? The other thing he wants to do is he actually does want to teach them how to really be great. One of the things I've really wanted to not do in this message is say, it is a bad thing to want to be great. Why would you want to be great? No, it's perfectly fine to want to be great, as long as it's great in God's eyes, in God's way. As long as it's, I want praise from the king. I want to please the father. I want to end my life and go to the judgment seat of Christ and have him say, dude, et. Didn't see that one coming. Dude, et. Yes, because Jesus has seen Bill and Ted and he knows. Some of us need to hear it like that. Great job. Proud of you. And it is not wrong at all to want to hear that from Jesus. And so he gives the way to do it. You have to find out what I want and what I'm doing and what I want to praise and then go for that. And because you're living in a world where the greatest man who ever lived chose to get crucified unto death naked in front of a crowd... All true greatness is going to be on the other side of humility that sometimes feels like humiliation. Taking what we think makes us strong and putting it on the altar of God and walking in his spirit-empowered weakness. It's just the way. So he says, here's the kid. Here's this thing that you think would be a sucky way to spend your life. And if you'll do it, my dad's going to pay you a visit. Do you want my dad to pay you a visit? Because he's pretty great. I'm talking about greatness. You want to be famous? How about my dad pays you a visit? Well, I I don't want to have to wait for your dad to pay me a visit by taking care of kids. So it's work to do then. Which leads me to talking about what I hope there is a, some kind of Reformation or revival someday going on. And uh, I think it would be so good to just want Dad to pay us a visit. Do you know what I mean? When you define what, what would be the best thing for Calvary, can we share, define it as we want the Father to pay us a visit? Like He's always here. But there's also times in Scripture where he shows up. And that would be the best. And then we start saying, Jesus, what would really make your dad want to pay us a visit? 
Not that we're controlling him or we're earning anything besides just welcoming him, but man, it would be so good if the Father God would just, like he hasn't yet. Amen? So, I would like to invite us to do a couple things. Um, I really think it would be good to... um, Sorry, I'm just trying to think of how to express this right. The people on this stage, when we get on this stage... This zone here is for the people who want to be the least important people at Calvary Chapel. Okay? The Word of God says, consider others as more important than yourself in Philippians. And I was so just grateful. Aaron was up here, and they were going to do this song. I don't know what song it was. There you are, Aaron. And for a second there, she thought that it was going to be in this key, which is like the smooth key. You just kind of go up and down a string. Doo, doo, doo. And she's just expressing it. I said, why are we so excited about the key? She's, then I can just worship more, right? It's not Because the, the key they did it in had a bit more sharps. It was a bit more sharpie. It was a pokey one. It was like up the pokey key, right? Yeah. I got this all figured out. I'm one of the great ones when it comes to music. <laughs> but the reality is, Aaron... Because you went along with the harder key that you had to work harder with for the sake of the team, it was actually better worship to the Father because you didn't insist on your own way. It is true. It was less fun in the moment, but of more worth to the Father. So... This is, this is a zone for the people who want to be the least important people at Calvary, the ones who don't want to get their own way, which fits in for me, because like I, how I do church is it's just like, what's next, Jesus, and what's best for you guys? Calvary is not my idea of the best church ever, because I don't carry with me the idea of the best church ever. What would be the point of going through life thinking every church didn't measure up to your ideal? What, 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 what would be the point? To know in your heart that you could find something wrong with every gathered, gathering of believers. But we can't go through life knowing that Jesus has a what's best next for all of us. And everybody here is more important than us. True? That's a big enough that's big enough homework right there. Already? Events? <laughs> that's big enough homework. So so I want you to come up here and be unimportant with me sometime. Or you can stay back there. People in the back row are probably the most important people here. Put up your hand if you're in the back row. 
I know you're hiding out. Jesus knows you're super important. Whatever you came here to get, maybe you'll get it. But Jesus thinks you're important. He wants to forgive you of your sins. He wants you to find a home in his church. He wants you to know he loves you. He wants you to know that you can be useful to him. He wants to spend forever with you. He sees sees the you you can be with him. And he's excited for you. And he's happy for you. And I may never ever learn your name. And you know what? That doesn't matter because I'm not that important. But God knows your name. And he knows your story. And he knows what he can do with you if you'll say yes to him. That's pretty awesome. 